Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. In relation to the next two discussions, we're going to look at admissions and illegally and improperly obtained evidence, which is a particularly complicated area. And what we need to do is to figure out a problem-solving methodology for that area of law. And then in really what might be the last discussion or two of evidence, we'll be looking at hearsay and the exceptions. So though it's taken quite a bit of time and effort, we're at the point where we've nearly finished our discussion of evidence and then the next uh, subject will be ethics. So in today's chat, what we're going to be doing is looking at identification evidence and opinion evidence. Based on past papers, it seems that identification evidence is assessed nearly every time, but not every time. And then opinion evidence seems to be assessed every single time. So that's a particularly interesting area. It doesn't quite come up in practice quite as often as it does as in the bar exam. And it's a convenient vehicle for examination because it includes both law uh, of evidence but also practice. And there are practice notes and disclosure responsibilities that relate to opinion evidence and expert evidence. So that's why it's a particularly convenient topic to examine in that way. In today's discussion, we'll start with identification evidence. And happily, that's a topic that's reasonably straightforward. And so what is needed in uh, in relation to a problem that concerns identification evidence is analysing whether it is identification evidence or whether it might fall into another category, and then figuring out how to approach the law. In relation to this area, this is yet another area where there's a fusion between the law and practice and we'll come very quickly to the point where we leave the evidentiary basis of admissibility of identification evidence and we move to the Jury Directions Act, specifically the directions that would need to be given if there was evidence of an identification in a particular case. In relation to ID evidence, the principles of admissibility commence at section 113 of the Evidence Act. But those provisions only relate to criminal proceedings. So if an issue of identification comes up, it's usually in the milieu of criminal proceedings. There's quite a rich background to this in the common law. The biggest case was the Domican warning, um, which, and we see the sort of vestigial remains of the Domican warning, the Jury Directions Act. But the criminal law had always been very cautious about ID evidence, and that's why The Evidence Act treats evidence of ID in criminal proceedings with a bit more sensitivity than it might in civil proceedings. If the situation arose with an identification in a civil case, which is most unlikely, you deal with it purely on the basis of the general discretion to exclude under Section 135. So you'd need to assess the probative value and the prejudicial effect. But if ID evidence is given in a criminal proceeding, then it attracts special protections and here we are. So in relation to section 113 and following of the Evidence Act, helpfully the dictionary definition tells us that identification evidence is defined, it means an assertion by a witness that the accused was or resembled a person who was present at the commission of the offence or an act connected to the commission of the offence at the time the offence or act was committed. Now here there are a couple of points. Look at the part um, of slide two that's in brackets. So that is based on what the witness saw, heard or perceived using any of the five senses. So a person can identify directly or by hearing 
or perception. And once you pass this exam and you move into practice and you start looking at trial process and all of its interesting variations, you'll see identification evidence, which usually is of a visual identification, but sometimes it can relate to a person observing a particular gait. For instance, if an accused staggers along or stumbles along or walks heavily, then they can identify certain features about the gait. That would be about what the witness perceives and sees. So it's not necessarily confined to what they see, but typically it is. And the second point, uh, helpfully, is the part that's been underlined in the second line before we get to the uh, brackets, that the accused was a person who was present at the commission of the offence or the accused resembles a person who is present at the commission of the offence. And this is also an issue that comes up in real life fairly frequently, which is to look carefully at the words that the witness uses when they purport to identify a person. So it's not just it was the accused, either I recognise that person or identify that person, it's clearly the accused. If you have a look at witness statements and if you listen carefully to descriptions that are given, often it is, for instance, an observation that the person in the photo looks like the person I saw at the the scene or some other um, way of describing a point of similarity. So it could be that this person was tall like the person that I saw at the scene or something else along those lines. Or sometimes you get a witness who identifies two photos or two people from a lineup saying it could be one or the other. And it's really important to use the very words that the witness uses in that later description and adoption of that identification. So that's what identification evidence is. It's not confined to to the um, witness nominating the accused as being the person at the scene. It could be that the witness nominates that the accused resembles a person at the scene and it doesn't need to be confined to a visual ID. It could be the way that they smelt, the way that they walked or some other evaluation of what the witness perceived. Now, then we have a division in the Evidence Act, and the first division relates to visual identification evidence. And this is defined as meaning evidence, identification evidence based wholly or partly on what a person saw, excluding picture identification evidence. So this could be an ID parade, or it could be another process in certain circumstances where the witness identifies the accused from some array of people. So the situation will fall within section 114 if the accused participated in an ID parade or, so the bullet point is expressed in the negative, but I'll express it as a positive. Visual identification evidence will be admitted if the accused participated in an ID parade or it was not practicable to participate in an ID parade or the accused refused to participate in an ID parade and so it's one or two or three, and the witness was not influenced to identify the accused. So if one of those preconditions is met, then the evidence can be admitted. If none of the preconditions or neither of the preconditions are met, then visual identification evidence is not admissible. So if it was practicable, for instance, to participate in an ID parade, but it didn't take place, then the visual identification evidence is not admissible. Or if there's any suggestion that the witness was influenced to identify the accused, then the evidence is not admissible. 
And I've seen all sorts of practical experiences of this. And indeed, once I was involved as, a, as an eyewitness and attempted to identify a person from a series of photographs and observing the preconditions of the law, when I couldn't identify any of the people, the um, police officer said, go on, they're there, have another go. And I couldn't help but think to myself that of itself would render the any identification inadmissible but managed to hold my tongue and didn't manage to identify any person. So the next question is whether it was reasonable to conduct an identification parade. And you might think that this might be one of the investigative techniques that police might think about at the conclusion of an interview. And you'll see on the final bullet point of the slide, the court may take into account a number of factors in determining whether it was reasonable to conduct a parade, including kind of offence and gravity, importance of the evidence, practicality of conducting a parade, and the appropriate to formalise the way in which identifications take place if visual identification evidence is relied upon as of conducting a parade, having regard, amongst other things, to the relationship between the accused and the witness. So Section 114 is designed and it definitely indicates a legislative predisposition to the identification at the ID parade. But it does preserve, of course, the accused right not to participate in such a process. And you may know from trial practice that they're not the norm um, and they don't take place particularly often, even though they are an available investigative technique. And you'll see the continuation of Section 114 at slide four. So that's one approach that can be taken by investigators in relation to querying whether identification evidence can be relied upon. Section 115 relates to a different situation, which is picture identification evidence. And this is typically referred to as photo boards. It can include other situations, but we'll talk about those as we go. So in the context of the Evidence Act, a picture identification evidence means an identification made wholly or partly by the person who made the identification examining pictures kept for use by police officers. But it's not admissible if the pictures examined suggested they are pictures of persons in police custody. So you can see the other preconditions and if this evidence is admitted, the trial judge must, at the request of the accused, inform the jury the picture was taken after the accused was taken into custody in relation to that matter, and they must not assume as a result that the accused has a criminal record or has previously been charged with an offence. So the photo board process is also the subject of legal clarification in Section 115. Um, if you are confronted with a situation involving identification in your exam problem, you then need to consider and uh, characterise whether it falls within one of those two issues in Section 114 or 115. If it falls within one or the other, then you'd uh, simply go through and discuss those legal preconditions. And the discussion is confined at this point to the Evidence Act. Now, in relation to jury directions, we're going to abruptly jump ahead to a discussion that we haven't yet had in relation to the Jury Directions Act, but it's irresistible at this stage because it resolves nicely the discussion of identification evidence. This doesn't just apply to the two categories that we've just looked at. It potentially applies to any other situation. So any situation in which a witness has identified an accused there is available a relevant direction under the Jury Directions Act, which now follows. 
So this is potentially broader, as I've said. Identification evidence is defined in the Jury Directions Act as an assertion by a person or a report of an assertion by a person that they recognise or don't recognise a personal object that they saw, heard or perceived on the relevant occasion or general characteristics or appearance of a person or object are similar to the general appearance or characteristics of the person or object that they saw, heard or perceived on the relevant occasion. And it includes the two that we've just looked at. It includes visual identification evidence. It includes picture identification evidence, but it's not confined to those two. So it wouldn't just include police investigative procedures. It might include any situation where, for instance, a person has uh, might have crossed paths with the accused at the scene of the crime, which may be uh, some, you know, down at the local pub, it might be at the local school, and then later they say that they cross paths with the same person. So it's broad enough to cover any situation where the witness claims that they identified or recognised the accused. So potentially broader, but it does need to be cross-referenced in your mind with any discussion under Section 113. 114 and 115. Now, um, as you may know from the Jury Directions Act, or as you may not yet know because you haven't turned your mind to studying the Jury Directions Act, its provisions are triggered by the forensic choices made by counsel at the conclusion of the evidence in a trial. So just to foreshadow where we're going with the Jury Directions Act, it's triggered by the forensic decisions made by counsel at trial. Secondly, it applies only to criminal proceedings. So where we talk about these specific provisions, it assumes that we're talking about a criminal case. And you might think that if the examiner was going to examine identification evidence, noting, of course, that the Evidence Act provisions also only apply to criminal proceedings, then you might think that the next logical step was to assess the Jury Directions Act. But make no mistake, it doesn't apply to civil proceedings. It only applies to criminal proceedings. Now, next, in this case, as in all cases, and further to the point where I opened, which is uh, it needs to be counsel's decision to seek such a direction. Upon request of defence or prosecution, a judge must warn a jury about identification evidence. And if such a request is made, that must be given unless good reasons exist for not giving such a warning. Now, next, in relation to this area, it is a notorious point raised time and time again in the common law that there are features of identification evidence that might make the evidence unreliable, but which may not be um, readily apparent to a jury. So there may be heaps of reasons why a person is mistaken in their identification, and that's considered by jurors to be counterintuitive. So the example is in relation to any counterintuitive situation that leads to a jury warning. When it comes to identification, Sometimes we see a witness who is extremely credible in their assertion that they identify or recognise a person. So it's very, very credible evidence and the witness is convinced that they are correctly identifying the person. The High Court in Domican and in many, many subsequent cases has noted that the literature in other areas such as psychology and in social sciences indicates that a witness may be utterly credible but also unreliable, so that it might be that they are convinced wrongly that they're identifying the correct person. And so the High Court told us that it's an area in which the jury may not be able to rely upon its common sense and experience to get a proper read on credibility and reliability, and that's why such a direction 
might need to be given in the circumstances of a particular case. Now, at common law, this would apply almost universally to every identification in circumstances where the person was not previously familiar with the person that they were identifying. But now the Jury Directions Act requires a request to be made and the significant matters, there being significant matters that make the ID evidence unreliable. So what is it about the circumstances of the identification that might impugn the reliability? Depends on the circumstances of the case. The Judicial College of Victoria is excellent in this regard, but it talks about the opportunity that the witness had to observe the person that they identified on the first occasion So the period of time, the stress that they were under, whether the person was previously known to them and other circumstances. And then it requires the witness to, requires the judge to evaluate the period of time and the other matters that might undermine the reliability. So basically the Jury Directions Act puts on the parties the obligation um, to identify what makes the evidence unreliable. Now, if no request is made, this is a bit of a, a trend in the, in the Jury Directions Act, the trial judge may still have a residual obligation to give a warning if there are substantial and compelling reasons for doing so. That's Section 16. A question has arisen, does that mean a civil jury case would automatically give the common law warning because the Jury Directions Act does not apply? The answer is not automatically. It would depend on whether the circumstances of the identification carry that issue of unreliability such that that the fact finder ought be directed or ought direct themselves in a civil case, that there might be reasons why the witness might be credible but otherwise unreliable. So looking at the genesis of the common law that led to the Jury Directions Act, you really need to do a proper evaluation of whether there are reasons for inferring that an identification in a civil case might be unreliable, that are not inherently obvious to the fact finder. So it just depends on the circumstances of the case. If, for instance, the witness had ample opportunity to observe the person that they later identified or if that person was previously known to them or the circumstances of the identification are not otherwise tainted by the sorts of factors that arose in Domic and and subsequent matters, then there wouldn't be a a justification for giving such a warning. Um, That would be a subtle point that has never been examined. It's not to say that it wouldn't be examined, but it's really more subtle than the examiners usually place emphasis on. So continuing the discussion under Section 36 of the Jury Directions Act, the contents of the direction varies with the circumstances of the case, but there are certain components that must be included and these are lifted in detail from the original Domican warning that was given so many times in so many criminal cases. So the trial judge must warn the jury of the need for caution in determining whether to accept the evidence and the weight to be given to it and inform the jury of the significant matters that may make the evidence unreliable and they need to be itemised by counsel requesting the direction. The direction continues paying loyal regard to the common law, inform the jury the witness may honestly believe the evidence is accurate when they are mistaken and the mistaken evidence of a witness may be convincing and, if relevant, inform the jury a number of witnesses may all be mistaken and, if relevant, inform the jury that mistaken ID evidence has resulted in innocent people being convicted. So a couple of editorial notes there. Firstly, this is a really good summary and of the matters distinguish credibility versus reliability if you've never had the opportunity to reflect on the difference. 
So look at sub-bullet point three. A witness may honestly believe the evidence is accurate. Well, that goes to credibility. When they are mistaken, that goes to reliability. Mistaken evidence of a witness may be convincing, which goes back to credibility. So looking back to believability versus the objective circumstances which make the evidence reliable. And if you look at the last sub-bullet point, just out of interest, Ordinarily, the Jury Directions Act doesn't quite go as far as this, but this is where the common law and the common law directions sometimes carried quite a sting, and this was one, inform the jury that mistaken evidence has resulted in innocent people being convicted is rather more a descriptive um, direction that's usually given under the Jury Directions Act. So helpfully, a summary of the types of matters that might impugn or undermine reliability, look to the facts of the case and make your best efforts under pressure of time to identify what might have tainted an otherwise reliable identification. So I would look to the circumstances of the sighting first, particularly any stress that the witness might have been under particularly given this is a criminal case, that they might be observing a very traumatic event. So it involves it might involve an assault, might involve a sexual assault, might involve worse. And it might be that if a witness is under stress, then they may not be quite as competent as laying down, at laying down new memories than in other circumstances. The next factor varies greatly in the circumstances of the case, whether the person was known to the witness of course it will be the case that if the person is previously known to the person identifying, that they're going to exercise what is almost recognition evidence rather than identification evidence, but we're not putting too fine a point on it. And you might know just from common knowledge that where you recognise someone, it almost involves a different process of reasoning than identifying them. So at its its most basic, these directions apply to a witness who might never have seen the accused before or since, except in the scene of the crime and in the later identification. That is the purest of identification evidence where the um, person is trying to interpret whether they're identifying the person that they saw. It's quite a different situation where, for instance, the person is recognising a person that they already know, which is the process that we use every day when we greet uh, our friends and colleagues. So continuing and bringing this topic to an end, there are a number of cases. The only one that I wish to draw to your attention, which is one that um, might be borne in mind, rarely assessed but still worthwhile, It also bridges this topic to the next one. Smith and the Queen is an important High Court case. And I'll just make a couple of observations um, and you can make notes if you would like later to refer to this case. In that case, we had an accused who it was said was caught on a surveillance video at the scene of the crime. So the evidence of the crime was, in fact, a video and then it was played at the trial. And then we heard evidence from a number of police witnesses who claimed that they could positively identify the accused from that surveillance video. So you can see the jury's faces like a a tennis match and they were swinging from the video to the accused and back and forward. The disputed point of evidence was whether this was relevant and admissible identification evidence. So the next point is, well, how did the police officers go about identifying the accused from the video? The answer is they did, the High Court held, precisely what the jury was doing, which was looking at the video and looking at the accused and comparing back and forward. 
The High Court considered that this was not identification evidence and accordingly it was not relevant or admissible. Instead, it was opinion evidence by the police officers and their opinion as to whether the accused was depicted in the CCTV was not relevant to the jury's assessment. The reason for that was because the police officers were in no better a position than the jurors to uh, infer whether it was the accused who was caught on the CCTV. So when it comes to an identification, there needs to be something in the witness's identification that is an improvement on the task that the jury undertakes. And in really important and reassuring obiter, the High Court said that a situation in which that might arise would be where a police officer or any other witness had prior knowledge of the accused. And so what the evidence was that they were giving was recognition evidence. So if the police officer or other person had a prior awareness of the way that the accused looked and the way that the accused moved in a video, then they might be in a better position than the jury and their simple task. So what's needed in identification is something more than what took place in Smith, which is where a police officer compares contrasts, compares contrasts and concludes that the accused is depicted in the video. So if, for instance, we had the accused spouse who had seen the video and was giving evidence suggesting that that was the accused in the video, then that would be a case where the jury would be entitled to hear from that witness because it does assist the jury in their processes albeit that that's the sort of identification evidence that would come with a warning under the Jury Directions Act. Now, there's a very helpful summary of the sorts of factors which might undermine the reliability of identification evidence on slide 11 and following, and some of these I've already mentioned. So if you needed a checklist of the the sorts of factors, then there it is. Now, any questions or comments? Otherwise, we'll turn to opinion and expert evidence, which is a little more subtle and slightly more complicated. Question, do the rules of ID evidence apply to evidence that the witnesses recognise someone? For example, I saw my brother at the scene of the crime. Yes, though not at common law, but that doesn't matter uh, for for the purpose of our discussions. The way that the Evidence Act approaches it and the way the Jury Directions Act approaches it is that recognition evidence is treated as ID evidence albeit that it wouldn't necessarily need the sorts of warnings that would come under the Jury Directions Act because you might think that recognition evidence carries more of a a reliability than identification evidence. So at common law, they were given different names and given different categories because identification evidence is the one in particular that the psychologist told us was potentially tormented by issues of reliability. So when it comes to recognition evidence, possibly not so much because there's not that factor that arises in some cases where the witnesses the witness sees the later picture or sees the later person in a lineup and becomes convinced that that person is the person that they saw at the scene. So recognition evidence can come under the umbrella of identification evidence though you might think it's not as suitable a candidate for jury directions act directions and so forth. Now, opinion and expert evidence is, as I say, examined on nearly every cycle of the exam. So there's no way of avoiding the difficulties that these provisions create. Here are the fundamentals. So under Section 76 of the Evidence Act, 
evidence of an opinion is not admissible to prove the existence of a fact about the existence of which the opinion was expressed. That's sort of a very confusing way of phrasing what is a basic rule, and that is this, that a witness can narrate what they saw, heard, or otherwise perceived. We know that. But they can't infer anything from what they saw, heard, or otherwise perceived. That would be an opinion. And the useful test is that from this point for the next week, whenever you're listening to someone describe something in full flight, you could almost separate the facts that they were describing, so the time of day and then what they saw and then what they saw, from the point at which the witness starts opining or editorialising about they must have had a bad night's sleep, they must have been in a bad mood, they must have been drunk, they must have been blah, 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 blah. And all of the stuff that comes, and it's basic human nature, where we connect the dots based on what um, a person sees, hears or otherwise perceives. We do it all the time by reading other people and inferring something about their mood or something about their physical or mental presentation based on the facts that we're describing. The way that the Evidence Act works is that we want the witness simply to narrate what they saw, heard or otherwise perceived and then it will be a matter for the jury as to whether the jury or the fact finder infers that the person was tired or that they were alcohol affected or that they were distracted without the witness then saying, and I think they were tired and distracted and drunk. Now, the Uniform Evidence Manual is excellent but it's almost overly detailed for the purpose of our studies. So what we need to do is to focus on the relevance of the facts that the witness is describing. So look really simply to what the witness is describing and consider whether it is really a description or whether the person is inferring or opining about what they're describing. Unfortunately, opinion is not legally defined and that's the reason why I'm trying to separate the facts that a person is describing from any editorialising and also why I'm assigning that homework where you start second-guessing family and friends to the point where you say, I just want you to describe the facts and just as politely as you can express it, don't tell me about your opinion because I can draw my own conclusions. Now, there are different rules as far as reception of opinions and reception of the exceptions in different jurisdictions. We're simply going to look at the provisions of the Evidence Act. So the main thing is to separate as best you can the facts from any editorialising. If there is a disputed question as to admissibility, the High Court in IMM has said that in assessing the probative value of the evidence, the judge separates the questions of credibility and reliability from admissibility. So the judge doesn't take into account issues with respect to credibility or reliability. So disputed questions that are just about to arise in relation to lay opinions and expert opinions, we reject an assessment of credibility or reliability. And here are the exceptions to the opinion rule. So you can also apply this test if you're listening to a person editorialise or rant and they're giving their opinion. Let me focus your attention, please, on lay opinions, which are section 78. And they're a really useful exception, which is where at the uh, subject matter of an opinion falls within a person, within the, the capacity of a person to express that editorial view, then the lay opinion might be relevant. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander traditional laws and customs can be an exception to the opinion rule. 
the other main exceptions that we look at are expert opinion, red hot, and admissions, which we'll come back to in the next discussion. Now, in relation to lay opinions, let's look at a very simple situation, which is where a witness is describing or a friend is describing their opinion, for instance, that they thought another person was drunk. So um, now at the moment, no one can go to a bar and have a few drinks with friends. I'm sorry, that should have come with a trigger warning. But if you were sitting at a bar with friends, there are certain factors that would immediately all draw into the same conclusion that you might make about someone, which is that they're affected by alcohol. It might be that that opinion that the person is affected by alcohol is relevant and admissible without you having to narrate the circumstances that led to that opinion. So let me focus your attention on section 78 about lay opinions. The opinion rule doesn't apply to evidence of an opinion expressed by a person if A, the opinion is based on what the person saw, heard or otherwise perceived about a matter of or event and evidence of the opinion is necessary to obtain an adequate account or understanding of the person's perception of the matter or event. So another, another way of expressing it, the person has or will narrate all of the particulars that led to their primary conclusion that the person was affected by alcohol. And what were they? Well, the person was slurring their words. So that is what they heard. The person smelt of alcohol. So that's what they otherwise perceived. So the person was staggering a little, which is what the person saw. Plus, you're at a bar and there were four empty glasses and so on and so forth. Now, if it were a simple opinion, then it might be that those circumstances are what you narrate and then the jury is left to opine that the person was drunk. But in that situation, the opinion is necessary to obtain an adequate account or understanding of the person's perception of the matter or event. Because what the person is describing is something that falls squarely within their basic understanding. It's really the evidence that they primarily need to give. And it's necessary for you to understand the significance of slurred words and smelling of alcohol and so forth. So when you look at lay opinions, my suggestion is to look at it as part of an integrated whole. So if what they're opining is part of a larger whole and they can narrate the other parts of the whole, then that's a perfectly valid opinion to offer. So lay opinions relate to, to a situation where the witness is narrating a bigger picture. The other acutely examinable opinion rule is, of course, expert opinions. And I mentioned these in a simple way. And as I've already foreshadowed, they also um, throw out connections to a lot of other areas of the law that are about to be assessed. So this is specialised knowledge. Um, 79.1, if a person has specialised knowledge based on their training, study or experience, then the opinion rule does not apply to evidence of an opinion of that person that's wholly or substantially based on that knowledge. So you can be an expert based on your training. Okay, So it might be that if you were to go down to the butcher and buy a really nice cut of meat and you speak to the butcher about it, that's based on their training, it's based on their experience and um, basically their time on the job, but it might not be based on their study. The study that you're doing at the moment will give you specialised knowledge in particular fields. So for a moment you might be, you know, before you perhaps forget or you know try not to remember the details of the law that you memorised, you might be an expert in the field for the time that the um, memory remains. So you can express an opinion that is wholly or substantially based on that knowledge. 
you don't become a generalized expert. So even if you're particularly skilled and experienced in a particular niche, that doesn't give you the capacity to express opinions on everything. Um, This is another family and friends issue that sometimes comes up. But it does give you the opportunity to express an admissible opinion in relation to that particular groove because you're actually, as a witness, far better qualified to express that um, opinion than the jury is. So you stand in stark contrast to, for instance, the Smith situation that we were looking at only a few minutes ago where the police officer is in as good a position as the jury. Now, 79.2 was rather recently amended to include the avoidance of doubt in relation to the following specific situation. So specialised knowledge includes a reference to specialised knowledge of child development and child behaviour, including specialised knowledge of the impact of sexual abuse on children and their development and behaviour during and following the abuse. And it continues in 79.2b. So the avoidance of doubt that's there being discussed actually relates to, and I'm just mentioning this for context, uh, a Court of Appeal, a Victoria decision that observed that a, um, a specialist in child psychology was fully capable of giving an expert opinion that even if a child had been the victim of child sexual assault, they wouldn't necessarily exhibit symptoms of trauma. So that was an interesting opinion and it became relevant and admissible. The trial judge accepted that to offer the observation that no trauma is as consistent with child sexual abuse as trauma is consistent with child sexual abuse was a relevant and admissible opinion. And now it's expressly covered by 79 subsection 2. So in relation to expert opinions, you're looking at the person's training, study or experience is point one. And point two is you need an opinion that's based solely or substantially on that knowledge and not something more generally. Note next, please, as per slide 24, section 388 of the Criminal Procedure Act confirms that in criminal proceedings that include a charge for a sexual offence, the court may receive opinion based on specialised knowledge relating to the nature of sexual offences and their potential impacts upon a complainant of a child sexual offence, sorry, of a sexual offence. So it's backed up in the Criminal Procedure Act. Now, your understanding of Section 79 doesn't need to be acutely detailed. You need, firstly, relevance. So once you're looking at the expert opinion, you can descend into the minutiae of of the categories that we've been looking at. But the first question is make sure that the expert, purported expert, is offering a relevant opinion. It needs to make a fact an issue more or less likely. Then two, as mentioned, specialised knowledge based on training, study or experience. And then the third bullet point, their opinion must be wholly or substantially based on that knowledge. It's typically done by the tendering of an expert report ahead of time, whether it's by way of disclosure, which I'll discuss in a moment, although once we get to the hearsay rules, it could be relevant and admissible as an exception to the hearsay rule. And this is the sort of thing that can be determined at voir dire in the absence of the jury, and that's where, referring to IMN earlier, the trial judge would need to ignore questions as to credibility and reliability in determining admissibility. Now, it's an area that's not without its problems. Specialised knowledge is not defined. Field of expertise, it is fairly loosely uh, interpreted and it doesn't incorporate a basis rule. And so it's, it's actually a more general test than is applied in other jurisdictions. 
Um, there are some relevant propositions extracted on slides uh, 27 and following in relation to training, study or experience. It can encompass ad hoc experts, which is the idea that this might come up, for instance, in a telephone intercept case where the person has for a short time listened to so many telephone intercepts, you know, 50, 60, 70 hours, that for the moment they may be an expert in identifying and distinguishing voices. So that's an example where a person's immersion in a particular subject matter might render them an ad hoc expert. So for that very moment in time, they're the best person to express an opinion in relation to what they've been examining. Now, there are, as mentioned on the slides, it indicates the variation within the rule between this jurisdiction and other jurisdictions, but it doesn't get any easier than the points that I've expressed in relation to relevance, in relation to ensuring that the expert has that specialised knowledge and ensuring that the opinion that they're expressing is confined to their area of expertise. A couple of last postscripts in this area, though, is that even if the evidence is prima facie admissible under Section 79, it can still be subject to exclusion under 135 to 137. So 135, you'll remember, relates to all cases and the balancing of probative force and prejudicial effect. 136 allows a judge in all cases to admit the um, evidence but monitor and control its use. And 137 applies in criminal cases. So the sorts of uh, circumstances in which expert opinion may still be excluded subject to uh, discretion is indicated on slide 30. And Odgers, who is, of course, the expert on evidence, his summary of the cases is further summarised. So if there's a risk that there, there might be, for instance, a genuine subversion of the jury's decision by the expression of the expert opinion, that is the sort of case in which some limitations would need to be made. Now, coming to the end of this area, which relates to the admissibility of expert evidence, note, please, that at the common law, under the common law, the expert could not give their opinion about the ultimate issue for the jury's consideration. So, for instance, in a cause of death case, a murder case, manslaughter case, the expert could not give the opinion that the jury otherwise has to decide. So they could describe their evaluation of how death was caused um, and the degree of force that was used, for instance, but they then couldn't express a view as to whether the ferocity of the attack meant that the person who did it must have intended what resulted. So they couldn't give their opinion as to the ultimate question of fact for the jury. Now, that rule is abolished under Section 80 of the Evidence Act. It's not inadmissible only because it's a fact and issue or the ultimate issue or it's a matter of common knowledge. So the, the ultimate issue rule is now abolished. But as I've said, if the expert is giving evidence as to what is effectively the ultimate issue for the jury, that's one matter that you might want to keep in reserve for exclusion under 135, 136 or 137 if there's genuinely a risk that the jury will not bring an independent mind to the task that is before them and infer because of the expertise of the witness that's giving the evidence and their impressive way of giving evidence that they should automatically conclude what the witness is saying. Now here, cross-reference criminal procedure. It's essential when you're looking at expert evidence to note that not only is there a question of admissibility in this context, 
but you also need to turn your mind to procedure. And that is because when it comes to a party relying on expert evidence, it must be disclosed ahead of time. So that doesn't make any difference to the prosecution's obligations in a criminal case because, of course, they always need to disclose their case, as as we'll come to once we finish our last couple of evidence discussions, once we finish our ethics discussions, we'll turn to criminal procedure. So the prosecution is nonplussed by this because they have to do it in every case. But the defence is not generally under an obligation in a criminal case to reveal the evidence that it will rely upon. There are a couple of exceptions to this. One is what we're looking at, and that is expert evidence must be disclosed under the Criminal Procedure Act. The second is alibi. And generally, there are few other exceptions as far as revealing the evidence that is going to be relied upon. Please note Section 50 of the Criminal Procedure Act applies to summary hearings. There are the time limits and the significant points. If an accused intends to call an expert, then the accused must serve on the informant and file in court a copy of the expert statement at least seven days before the relevant hearing. And 50 subsection 2 are the matters that need to be included in that filing and filed and served document in relation to a trial and indictment, which would, of course, apply in the county court as well as the Supreme Court. Section 189 of the Criminal Procedure Act applies. And the obligation there is, as per slide 34, a copy of the statement of the expert witness at least 14 days before the day on which the trial of the accused is listed to commence or as soon as possible if it's not in existence. And 189 subsection 2 specifies what needs to be included in that report. And that will allow, if necessary, the prosecution an opportunity to reply. If the prosecution has served a forensic report, then the accused may wish uh, to take the opportunity to reply. Now, note the last postscript in relation to criminal procedure is in the county court, the party calling the witness has an obligation to provide an expert witness with a copy of the expert witness code of conduct at the time of engaging the witness. Now, could the examiner possibly descend into the level of detail of a county court practice note? Well, why wouldn't they? But the very last post postscript in relation to procedure is that the county court has special obligations it imposes special obligations on expert witnesses in relation to the provision of reports. So happily, we finished slightly early, earlier than the hour. In our next and last discussions of evidence, as I've mentioned, we'll look at admissions and illegally or improperly obtained evidence and then the tricky subject of hearsay. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.